0: Well, this evening, we could uh, <clears throat> skip to a slightly different section of the book. Can you turn the light up a bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ah, very good. Um, oh. <laughs> no. So, uh, this is back in the chapter uh, that's called A Life Inspiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good, no more adjustments needed A life inspiring And so this chapter deals more with uh, Lumpur's um, personal qualities, characteristics rather than giving meditation advice So I thought as a, a group of us are taking off tomorrow and um, uh, heading to, uh, uh, to the ceremonies there and this would be a suitable to uh, explore for this evening. So this section is uh, called Sketches. The first part is called <coughs> Inspiring. A number of the qualities that came to define Lumpur in the eyes of his disciples were virtues held in universal regard. Perhaps the most prominent of these was that of patience. Although some accomplishments are necessarily private, the extent of a forest monk's capacity to endure through physical discomfort and the rigors of monastic life can never be so. As the leader of a monastic community, Lumpo's patience was visible to all. He earned the particular devotion of the monks of Wapapong by leading them from the front and, ne- and by never asking them to do anything that he would not do himself. He also became renowned for his forbearance when dealing with the problems attendant on running a large monastery, listening to and advising on the difficulties and doubts of the monks and novices and mechis and lay supporters. When Lung Por spoke about patience, and he spoke about it often, his words carried great weight. Lung Por was also seen as a role model for the appropriate expression of gratitude, perhaps the virtue most central to Thai culture. In Thailand, a sense of gratitude is taken to be a key distinguishing mark of goodness. Accusations of ingratitude are experienced as serious and hurtful, even devastating. In fact, gratitude is a somewhat imprecise translation of the Thai katanyu katawaiti, a term taken straight from the Pali, as the latter consists of two related virtues. Katanyu is the recognition of kindnesses received and katavedi, the determination to appropriately express that recognition. Efforts to repay, quote, the debt of gratitude, unquote, are given particular emphasis in Thailand, especially in the case of key benefactors, such as parents and teachers. Lung honoured his parents in a manner fitting to a monastic. As a young monk, he postponed his studies in order to nurse his father on his deathbed. During his traveling years, he regularly visited his mother and gave her Dhamma teachings. When he established Wat Bapong, he arranged for her to come and live in the monastery and to become a nun under his guidance and protection, which was her wish as well. She was, not <laughs> she was not dragged there. She was one of the very first um, monastic uh, disciples in, in Wat Bapong. Although Lungpho never practiced under the guidance of a teacher for any great length of time, the sense of gratitude he felt for those who had helped him on the path was tangible. He always spoke with the greatest reverence of Lungpho Mun, his spiritual father, meeting whom had been the pivotal experience in his life. He also often spoke with great affection and respect of Lungpho Tongrat and Lungpho Kinneri, the other two monks who had most strongly influenced him. Lungpu Man passed away in 1949, the year after Lungpo visited, visited him in Nongpur, while Lungpu Tongrat died shortly after Lungpo's return to Ubon in 1956. Lungpo was thus denied the opportunity to express his gratitude to them, but Lungpo Kinneri lived on, until about, lived on until 1980, and for many years prior to that, Lungpo sent a regular shift of monks from Wotpapong to act as attendants and nurses as the old monk refused to have anything at all to do with the medical profession. When Lumpur Kinneri died, Lungpo and his disciples organized the funeral and conducted all of the funeral rites. Lumpur endeared himself to the lay supporters of Wat Pong by showing an unwavering appreciation for their support, never taking it for granted. On important occasions in the lives of his long-term, long-time supporters, Bung Po would accept invitations to receive alms in their houses. When they were ill, he would visit them and give them encouragement. And at the end of their lives, he would lead the Sangha in performing the funeral rites. He once said to the Sangha, When I knew a certain amount about myself, I thought about the laypeople. I saw the debt I owed them everywhere, even, when, even people who had only put one ladle of rice in my bowl. I wasn't heedless. I didn't forget. I thought of the kindness of every single person. He constantly reminded his disciples to recall how their life depended on the generosity of lay supporters. Again, Lumpur speaking. Giving food, lodging, and medicine in times of sickness, these aren't small matters. They're supporting our journey to Nibbana. If we had no food, we wouldn't be able to make it, we wouldn't be able to meditate. The next section, so the first one was called Inspiring, the next section is called Passion. The Buddha distinguished two kinds of desire, that which is rooted in ignorance of the way things are, tanha or craving, and that which is rooted in an understanding of the way things are. The first is to be abandoned, the second is to be cultivated. This second desirable kind of desire is explained as, quote, the will towards goodness Kusala Chanda, or the will towards truth, Dhamma Chanda. It manifests as a passion for Dhamma practice. Lungpur was never short of passion. He once revealed that of the problems that he experienced in his monastic life, the only one that had caused him serious difficulty was the sexual desire that bedeviled him throughout his twenties. Fortunately, his passion was never directed solely towards the world of the senses. The same energy propelled him into the monastery at a young age and manifested itself in his devotion to the Dhamma and the Vinaya. As worldly lusts abated, this wholesome passion blossomed. The strength of his commitment to the Vinaya was expressed well in his avowal to his disciples that, quote, I'd rather die than transgress the Vinaya. I'd regret losing my life less than losing my virtue, unquote. And his enthusiasm for the Dhamma shone through when he compared the joy of facing up to the defilements as like the pleasure of eating extremely spicy food. His practice was characterized by daring and boldness. The passion for truth gave him what, in other, in other ways of life, would have been called an excellent work ethic. He remained undaunted in the face of obstacles and declared that, quote, Nibbana lies on the shores of death, unquote. His zest for practice was such that his disciples, struggling to keep up, said that for him it was as if there was no no day or night. He once told a newly ordained Ajahn Chon that, if you really knew how to bow to the Buddha, you would have tears in your eyes. And the Ajahn Chon in this book is actually Ajahn Jayasaro. His uh, his lay name was Sean, uh, and that uh, Ajahn Chah would remember our names by by kind of making convenient alliterations. So ch- uh, chon is a word for a spoon, <laughs> or son in Isan dialect. So he was known as spoon. So ch- so, that, uh, so this Ajahn Chon is Ajahn Jayasara's kind of uh, nickname for himself in this book. When you've got your own copy, you can, you can spot the appearances of that. But the passion that came to the fore in the prime of his life was for communicating his understanding of Dhamma to others. Training monastics was his first priority. They were the ones who were making the most sacrifices for the Dhamma, the ones who were giving their whole lives to the teachings. In one of the Buddha's similes, they were compared to the farmer's most fertile, well-drained soil. He gave everything to this task, creating a system that was not overtly... Sorry creating a system that was not overly reliant on him and which could survive his eventual death. The success of his efforts may be estimated by the steady growth of branch monasteries. When he stopped teaching, there were about 60, and 30 years later, there were over 300. So he stopped teaching in 1984, 83-84, and so here we are now to 2018. So that's um, 34 years later. So there's about 320, 330, I think. (coughs) Lumpur's passion for the Dhamma became clearly apparent whenever he began to teach. Even at times of serious illness, teaching the Dhamma would bring him alive. As he spoke, he would become more animated, his voice stronger, his presence more commanding. It seemed that, by giving voice to the Dhamma, he tapped into a deep source of energy, between these bursts of vitality, it was as if he shrank back into the shell of his ailing body. It was clear that to Lumpur, Dhamma was indeed his life. Though also, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> when I've been traveling around in Thailand and re- recently being in India and then in uh, Singapore, Malaysia, um, Yeah, it's very... Um, heartening for people to say, oh, please come back, please come back, you've got to come back again, please come and teach another retreat, we need you, we need you, which is very flattering and pleasing. But what I say over and over again is that the monastic community at Amravati has to be my priority. So I take my, my lead very much from, from Lumpur Chah in this, that um, even though there are many, you can go many places in the world and people can be appreciative, and yes, they meet you with smiles and look after you very well, over and over again, I say um, that to the monastic community here, not to exercise emotional mail, <laughs> 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 but, uh but I, I, really, I'm, I'm, it's absolutely true, I say it over and over again, I mean, I, and I feel it, it's, that that's, as it, as it says here, they were the ones who, uh, who, were make, who were making the most sacrifices for the Dhamma, the ones who were giving their whole lives to the teachings. So I feel that needs to be acknowledged. And to be uh, responded to appropriately, and so I say over and over again. Well, you know, if I if I said yes to all the invites I get from uh, uh, from say Thailand or India or Australia, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, um, Hungary, uh, Norway, eh, 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 everywhere, um, then I'd never be here. And I know that um, I'm. Just following along after Lumpur Semaeto, having uh, has founded the place, but I do feel a certain responsibility since I am the abbot at the moment, and that there are not many other candidates who would step into this this uh, role if I popped if I fell off my perch. Uh, I think it'd be, there wouldn't be a queue <laughs> <laughs> applying for the role of abbot of Amravati, perhaps an extremely short queue. So. Um, uh, I say over and over again that uh, really the, the people who've made the commitment to monastic training, the who, people who live here, who've given their lives to living in the monastery and um, uh, working here, training themselves here, that uh, that has to be the, the priority and that um, not to make other people feel bad, but just to say, you know, the, this is the, the, the group of people who really uh, uh, put, their, uh, put their money, where, well, not their money, but... <laughs> Put their arms for where their mouth is. maybe that's not quite right, but uh, they've made the commitment they've shaved their heads, put on the robes and, and even the the lay residents who are here also have uh, given many many years of uh, of life and hard work and commitment to to training and living here so I feel that uh, very strongly this needs to be the the priority so I try to keep a standard for myself of not being away more than a quarter of the year, so more than I try to keep it to a maximum of 90 days in the, in the year uh, away from Amravati. It doesn't always work out quite like that. But um, I feel that uh, in exactly the same way, this is the, um, <coughs> the farmer's most fertile well-drained soil. So if you're feeling like well-drained mud, and soil, <laughs> that's all right. That's good. That's a good sign. So the next section is called contentment. One of the cardinal monastic virtues praised by the Buddha is the cultivation of contentment with regards to whatever robes, food, lodging and medicines are offered to them with faith. Monastics are to be as light a burden as possible on lay supporters, and they should model a life which proves that happiness does not have to depend on the enjoyment of sense pleasures. It was a virtue much emphasized at Wat Bapong, and Lungpo led the way in the practice of it. He was admired for his frugality and for the care with which he treated the offerings made to him. He received whatever robes were sewn for him without comment. He was never known to express desires for any particular kind of food. He showed no interest in beautiful things. As his reputation grew, wealthy lay supporters competed to offer him fine requisites, but he did not change. On one occasion, a group of monks following the lead of some other well-known monasteries put forward the idea of registering Wat Bapong as a charitable foundation. Lumpur was getting old, and charitable status would guarantee the financial stability of the Wat after his death. Lumpur gave them his opinion. And he speaks here. It's a good idea, but I don't think it's a correct one. With a charitable foundation, you would no longer be depending on your own, pra- your own pure practice. If you all practice well and correctly, you won't go without. The Buddha never set up a charity. He just shaved his head and lived as we do, and he did well enough. He laid out the path, and all we have to do is walk along it. That will, without doubt, be enough to keep you going. The bowl and robe, they are the charitable foundation that the Buddha established for us. With them, you will always receive more than you need. Lumpur asserted that maintaining a standard of simplicity and cleanliness in the material world led to a clean and uncluttered mind. A popular maxim at Wat Bapong said, If you've got a little, use little. If you've got a lot, use little. Mm -hmm. As the numbers of visitors to the monastery increased, so did the amount of the donations. Nobody would have given a second thought if Lumpur had taken advantage of this increase in funds to permit an upgrade to the comfort of his dwelling place, but he maintained the same frugal lifestyle as when he first established the monastery. It is true that the Kuti built for him in the late 1960s was bigger than those of the other monks, but the increased size was simply a means to provide a large enough covered area below it where he could receive guests. The size of the room upstairs in which he slept was less than three metres by three. Almost completely bare, it contained a low wooden bed with an inch-thin mattress, and just the most necessary items of daily use, such as a water jug and spittoon, and the toilet was a small outhouse at the edge of the forest. Lumpur distributed any gifts offered to him personally to his disciples, or else sent them off to poor branch monasteries. All money and requisites offered to him went straight into a central Sangha fund. He had no personal funds or private bank account. He said, We've got enough to eat and a place to live. What's the point of accumulating things? We only eat once a day. <coughs> On many occasions people would complain to Lumpur that, after they had made an invitation, a pavarana to him, for anything personal that he needed, he'd never made any use of the funds. He said to the monks, The more invitations people make, the more wary I am. Ajahn Anik spoke for many of the monks when he expressed the feelings that arose when he observed Lumpur's lack of greed. The thing which made me feel most proud and satisfied to be Lumpur's disciple, and the thing that inspired me the most, was his own practice. He was never one to accumulate offerings no matter what their value. He once said that as monks, the moment that we start accumulating things, then it's the beginning of the end. One year, to make merit on her birthday, Kunying Dunn, one of Lumphoor's wealthiest lay supporters offered Lumphoor ninety thousand baht, so that would be about um, ten thousand pounds today. She insisted that the money should be used for his own personal needs; it was not to be used for the monastery. After she'd gone, Lumphoor said that if there was any expense that involved him personally, we should use this money and not leave any over. So we used it to print a beautiful hardback edition of his teachings for free distribution. There has always been a certain amount of tension between the Isan forest monks and the titled administrator monks in the towns and cities. Whereas the forest monks have been critical of the perceived worldliness of the city monks, the city monks, for their part, have been dismissive of what they see as the forest monks' rigid attachment to outdated forms, including the ascetic practice of eating out of the alms bowl rather than from plates on a table. On one occasion, Lung was invited was included in a group of monks invited to an offering of alms at the royal palace in Bangkok. He arrived at the same time as a certain senior monk who looked scornfully at Lung arms alms bowl. Cha, don't you feel embarrassed about eating out of your bowl in front of the king? Lung Por replied, don't you feel embarrassed about not eating out of your bowl in front of the Buddha? <laughs> Touché. So that's also, the, there's a, a whole section of the Sanyita Nikaya called the Laba Sangita, which is about, Laba means gains or acquisitions, and uh, the, the Buddha is very uh, similarly very, very pointed about um, uh, monastics pursuing gains, gain, honor, and renown, and talks about the, uh, being um, the recipient of many offerings or being praised, being admired. These are sort of, like a, uh, a, a kind of unfortunate disease that you should try and you know, uh, seek treatment for or that you, you need know, to, to, uh, to handle with, with great care. And in one very telling sutta, he says it's like a, a, a dung, and, and very deliberately it's quite an insulting um, image, he says it's like a dung beetle, you know, a monk who's proud of his fame or proud of his acquisitions or proud of his, his titles or his, um, his reputation. It's like a dung beetle that um, collects a ball of dung says, I've got the biggest ball of dung. Look at the size of my ball of dung. Isn't it huge? Aren't you impressed with how big my ball of dung is? So it's, it's deliberately kind of uh, pointed. That the Buddha was uh, uh, a genius at coming up with these images that uh, you know, <coughs> catches a particular situation. Lutha similarly, that... that uh, it's very easy for so-called spiritual people to be proud of their position or their status, their titles, their, uh, their uh, reputation, and, and uh, by comparing it to a dung beetle that's proud of its ball of dung. I've got the biggest ball of dung around here. Then it <coughs> puts it into a, a context that uh, why is the possession of a of a, a, a fancy um, uh, building any more... Uh, any substantially any different from uh, a dung beetle collecting a, a, a big handsome ball of dung that it's equally proud of. So the next section is called Equanimity. For many years, Long pho was the subject of criticism and slander from a small number of jealous monks in Ubon. At the height of the Vietnam War, he was denounced as a communist. One year, it was even whispered, uh, one year it was even whispered about that a senior monk had gone so far as to hire a hitman in the thailand of the time not such an outlandish assertion although lumpur did not die the monk supposedly behind the plot did from rabies which is a particularly nasty way to die <clears throat> time passed and lumpur's resolute refusal to add fuel to the flames of conflict allowed the situation to cool lumpur having handed having handled unjustified abuse with equanimity, now faced a new challenge, fame and popularity. Incidentally, um, the person who was reputedly hired as the hitman, um, he became a monk with Ajahn Chah. <laughs> it was one of those... Uh, this, again, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure of the, of the uh, 100% accuracy of the story, but this, the story is, and I knew this monk, he, he was this very, very sweet, and uh, so sort of genial old man used to come and stay at uh, what Paranacar sometimes, called Porsui. And uh, he, was, uh, he didn't speak any English at all, but he liked to spend time around the, the Western monks from, uh, on occasion. And anyhow, the story was that he'd been hired as a hitman and that, uh, to kill Ajahn Chah. And so, in order to sort of figure out how he was going to make his shot and make his, and make his escape, then he sort of spent time sitting under the kuti and watching how Ajahn Chah kind of spent his time and where the kind of the lines of sight were. And but he got a bit too close to the teachings, so he spent a bit too much time around the the dhamma talks, and thought and kind of started to enjoy listening to the teachings rather than just being planning planning his uh, attack. And and um, after some time, then he had to uh, he went to Lumpur and confessed. He said, look. Actually, I'm not really here as a disciple. I was here. I was hired to kill you, but now I'm. Af- uh, but I, I've given that up, and I'm afraid that I'm going to need protection from the people who hired me. So, um, you know, can you help? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Lumpur just took him in, and um, eventually he was ordained as a bhikkhu. Uh, yeah, he was, and he was the uh, most sweet, harmless old guy you could uh, you could possibly imagine. And when when I heard that story, I said, "Poor Sui, was a hitman really?" But it was uh, northeast Thailand at that time was, was kind of like the Wild West, and so uh, um, I think it was some uh, a uh, to hire somebody to kill somebody else was only about three hundred baht. It's not a high price. So it was, you could uh, <laughs> so it was it was a pretty lawless region in that in that era. So to continue, the Buddha was blunt on the dangers likely to beset a monk who becomes famous. Okay, here we go. So, um, a fatal thing are gains, favour, and fame. A bitter, harsh impediment to the attainment of the unsurpassed freedom from bondage. So that's from the, that's the first sutta in the Laba Sangyutta, Sangyutta Nikaya. Uh, the temptation they, prov- they they provide to pride and arrogance is strong. It is just like a beetle, feeding on dung, gorged with dung, standing before a great dung hill, who might despise other beetles, saying, I am a dung eater, full of dung, gorged with dung, and before me is this great dung hill. So proud of his dung dung ball. In the mobile connected world of today, it is inevitable that an accomplished monk resident in a monastery for any length of time will, sooner or later, attract the attention of the laity. This was already true in the 1970s. During the Vietnam War, an ambitious program of road-building was undertaken in the Isan, primarily for military and national security reasons. One result was that it became much easier to visit forest monasteries. At a time of growing secularization, and a widespread sense that the standard of the monastic order had never been so low, people started to look further afield from central Thailand, for monks who are truly worthy of their respect. Luang name began to be included on the list of inspiring monks worth visiting. So the Isan is the whole northeastern collection of provinces. Um, uh, so, It's called the northeast, but it's also directly east of Bangkok and uh, right up to the the Mekong River and the borders with Laos and Cambodia. A short biography of Luang Por, written in 1968 by his disciple Anchan Maha Amon, was another milestone. Local businessmen in the city, civil servants, and army and air force officers posted in Ubon started to arrive in greater numbers. Soon Lung Por was known to the lay Buddhists of Bangkok. Coachloads of merit makers started to arrive. This new state of affairs was impressed upon the monastery when two members of the King's Privy Council visited to ask questions on Dhamma practice. Sometime later, Lumpur was invited to receive arms in the royal palace. So, the Privy Council that's like the, the small committee of people that are the, the most immediate advisers to the king. The publication of books of Lumpur's transcribed Dhamma talks, both in the Thai originals and in English translation, were initiated by his Western disciples in the late 70s. Following Lumpur's admonition that the Dhamma should never be bought and sold, They were made available for free distribution. These books, followed by the first set of audio cassette tapes, spread Luang name throughout Thailand and English translations gave him an international audience. Before long, his teachings were being translated into German, French, Spanish, Chinese and other languages. Luang seemed as unmoved by this newfound fame and status as he was by abuse and slander. On the 5th of December, 1973, he received from King Bhumipon Adulyadej the monastic honour of Chao Kun with the title Prat Bodhinyana Thera. On his return from Bangkok, a large crowd was waiting to greet him at Ubon Railway Station. A long procession of cars and trucks escorted him back to the monastery, where many hundreds of more people were waiting. Once there, a grand merit-making ceremony took place to celebrate the honour conferred by the king on their teacher, Throughout it all, Longpo remained a cool, still centre at the heart of the excitement and joy. When the lay people formally invited him to give a Dhamma talk, he spoke of his feelings at receiving the title. He said the title of Chao Kun was a worldly convention. He was the same Longpo that he'd been a few days before. Worldly Dhammas of gain and loss, fame and obscurity, pleasure and pain, praise and blame are all fickle and changing. Knowing the nature of worldly dhammas, the mind is not moved by them. And Lumpur then said, The bridge over the river Moon, which is the, the river that goes um, between uh, Ubon and Warin, the nearby towns, the bridge over the river Moon always remains the same. It doesn't arch up if the waters rise, it doesn't sag if the waters fall. And this next section is called Personality. It would seem obvious that any detailed discussion of a person's life must, sooner or later, focus on his or her personality. It tends to be assumed that it is in the personality that the essence of a person is to be found. But this apparent truism requires certain qualifications in the case of liberated beings or those practising for liberation. In such cases, the personality is fluid. Personality traits, based on defilements, such as greed and anger, shrink and disappear. Those traits free from defilement, like kindness and compassion, grow and mature. In the case of liberated beings, those character traits, eccentricities and elements of personality that are not sustained by defilement survive their enlightenment. Inarticulate aspirants become inarticulate arahants. Stern aspirants become stern arahants. Charismatic aspirants become charismatic arahants. There is no fixed mould. And just as bright and radiant people may occasionally prove to be deluded or mentally unbalanced, so too the most unprepossessing figures may, in fact, be fully liberated. Lumpur once compared enlightened beings to birds of different species, differing in size, wingspan, colouring, sound, and so on, but all recognisably members of the bird family. So as an example of that... um, uh, Lampu Man, uh, Ajahn Chah's uh, teacher and uh, his sort of source of his uh, his um, main, main uh, instruction and training, was extremely articulate, uh, very imaginative uh, in teaching, and very very eloquent, um, and uh, and so he was famous for his uh, his uh, abilities to expand dhamma and to be uh, give long inspiring and you know, luminous discourses and filled with with good examples and wit and um, uh, very, um, say, comprehensive. But his teacher, uh, Ajahn Mun's teacher, Ajahn Sao, was extremely quiet. And he was well known for um, his very, very brief Dhamma talks. So sometimes he would, apparently, uh, he'd climb up onto the Dhamma seat and then recite the Namo and say, Being good is good. A one, that it. That was the Dharma talk. Then he get down. <laughs> so, so and that, what else is there to say? Being you know? mm-hmm. good is good. So. Okay, off you go. <laughs> so he was extremely quiet. And then there's in, in the, the biography of uh, uh, Longpu Man, um, there's this comment that's re- re- uh, that is recorded that uh, uh, that Lungphu Sao makes. It's like, how do you? How come we have so much to say? <laughs> you know, you're so talkative; it's amazing how how, how much you find that to to talk about. This is mind boggling to me, because his own disposition was so so quiet and still. But I think Ajahn Saro puts it very clearly here: that uh, inarticulate aspirants become inarticulate arahants. <laughs> and there was a, a in, famous famously in the suttas, the um, this arahant called uh, Chula Pantaka was. Uh, Given the job of giving the exhortation to the nuns, and the nuns got really bored because he would just uh, every every fortnight he would come along and he would just recite recite the same four-line verse every every fortnight, and then he'd finish his talk and go away. And the nuns are kind of this we're getting short-changed here. This is you know the Venerable Chulapadika. Every fortnight he comes and he just says the same thing every time, and it's always the same. It's it's only four-line verse, and then he goes away again. And so then <clears throat> the, the Buddha uh, reassured them that, well, actually, uh, Chulapantaka was really a, a, an accomplished teacher. And so, if I remember the story correctly, the next time that uh, Chulapantaka came, he delivered the, the, uh, the, the Dhamma talk from the air. So he flew <laughs> around the nuns Vihara and delivered his, uh, his, his four line verse airborne. <laughs> so that had a bit, you know, it was the same four line verse. <laughs> But he was flying as he, as he delivered it, so that got the sisters' attention. <laughs> but, uh, they were apologetic, that they misjudged him and thought, this is a stupid monk who doesn't know anything. They so, said, well, yeah, he's a stupid monk but he's also an Arahant. You know, but, uh, he might not have much to say, but uh, doesn't mean to say he might not be totally liberated. The second qualification that, mis- that must be made in speaking of the personality of enlightened beings is that they do not have the same relationship to their personality as a normal person. Liberation in the Buddhist sense means freedom from all identification with personality and personal history. Be that as it may, unenlightened beings, identifying with their own body and mind, cannot help but perceive an enlightened person in the same way that they perceive themselves, as embodied agents. And it's because that is so that the personality of great beings is significant. For many students, it may be a response to the teacher's personality rather than an intellectual assent to the teachings that proves the deciding factor as to whether or not they take up the Buddhist training seriously or, having taken it up, bear with it. Lung is was one of the more charismatic kinds of bird. One of his brothers, one of his like his. Um, um, his brother, not brother monks, but his physical brothers, his family brothers, said of him, I wouldn't exactly say he was a handsome man. It's a very brotherly comment. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't exactly say he was a handsome man, but when you were in his presence, you couldn't take your eyes off him. Other members of his family had this same magnetism, albeit to a lesser extent. For many years, one of the regular features on an observance day at Wakba Pong would be Lung eldest brother, Paul La, sitting in the kitchen surrounded by a small crowd of people expounding on some subject, recounting an anecdote or telling a story. The style was unmistakable. Western monks would comment on how Lung seemed to be so completely who he was. In other words, they could discern no false notes in his manner, no hints of insincerity or conceit. As the centre of attention, he showed as much self-consciousness as a lion on a plain, surrounded by safari jeeps. <laughs> That's a great image. Mmm, lunch. <laughs> he remained the same, whatever the surrounding conditions. One monk said he was like a mountain that was unaffected by the rain, snow, or shine that came and went around it. And yet, there was a paradox. Although he impressed those around him as a figure of absolute authenticity, he could, at the same time, slip personas on and off like items of clothing, but the more unpredictable he might be in what he said or how he expressed himself at any one moment, the more unchanging he seemed. That's a bit of a tricky sentence. So I'll read that again. But the more unpredictable he might be in what he said or how he expressed himself in any one moment, the more unchanging he seemed. So, even though there was this kind of fluidity of personas. There was this quality of unwavering presence at the same time. So I'll vouch for that as well. Occasionally, as Ajahn Sumato would remark, it was as if Lumpur withdrew from his personality altogether. This is Lumpur Sumato speaking. Sometimes I'd look at him and there'd be just no one there. The look he had of total emptiness was quite moving because he realized that the personality was just something that he used as a compassionate tool. Sitting under his kuti, receiving guests, Lumpur would flow between quite different modes as the situation required. On any given day, he might have, he might ju- he might have just finished comforting a bereaved father in homely Lao, then switching to central Thai to explain some point of doctrine with Bangkok academics and go on to admonish a monk for a sloppy job of repair work done on one of the cooties. This would go on throughout the day. It was not the multitasking, familiar to business executives. He was fully present in every moment, giving no sign of mental stress in moving from one mode to another, and no emotional run over. When telling a favorite story, he would chuckle as he got to the funny part, as if it were the first time he'd told it. At such times, there was no trace of the vanity and bombast of the great man with a captive audience, nor the slightest acknowledgement that many of his audience knew the story well. It was a stronger teaching about being in the moment than any amount of theoretical instruction could impart. Ajahn Chon was one of the monks who marvelled at such sessions. One evening, Lung was sitting on the wicker seat underneath his kuti, talking to a small group of monks about the old days and I was in my favorite position massaging his feet. His manner was so warm and inspiring that I felt utterly content. I could have sat there the whole night without complaint. Then a torch beam moved through the forest towards us. It was Venerable Do. He was quite a senior monk who had transgressed a serious vineyard training rule and was undergoing monitor, the prescribed purificatory practices. Venerable Do, had bought some of Lumpur's freshly washed robes to put away upstairs. Without any stiffening in his body, Lumpur suddenly barked at him in the harshest possible way. The contrast with the atmosphere in our small group made the hair on my back stand on end. At that moment, Lumpur was utterly ferocious. Venerable Do quickly did what he had to do, bowed and left. Then Lumpur continued our conversation as if nothing had happened. He made no comment about Venerable Do and didn't refer to what had just happened at all. It was as if it had never happened. I suddenly felt very heedless. The intimacy I'd felt holding his foot in my hand and the enjoyment of the conversation had made me forget that here was someone who dwelt somewhere far beyond my scope and comprehension. I felt a strong compulsion to be mindful and alert. I realised that I could take nothing for granted. Another monk spoke of Lung being a mirror in which you always saw yourself, his ability to reflect people 's attention back on their own defilements was not due to him adopting an even an, an even emotional tone, rather it was a consistent lack of self in whatever mode he was expressing and so his disciples loved him and feared him in an ex- and, and feared him in an inexplicable visceral way. so I also had that same kind of uh, experience. Uh, I've often recounted when, uh, uh, that uh, that, uh, Lumpur Sumedho describes. Uh, So uh, I didn't spend that much time at the main monastery. I was mostly at Wat Pananachat, but from time to time I was over there at Wat Bapong. And so I only spent about three weeks in Ajahn Chah's presence altogether over those couple of years I was there. But on this occasion uh, I was staying at Wat Bapong and one of the senior monks uh, was... I was there in the sala, the, the main meeting hall, and a group of people had, uh, had arrived. And it was quite a large group uh, and uh, that uh, came in a couple of tour buses, I guess, and so there wasn't enough space under Lumpur's Kuti to, to take them over there. So the uh, the senior monk said, Oh, uh, could you go to, uh, to Lumpur's Kuti and tell him that this uh, uh, some busloads of people have arrived there in the sala and uh, uh, just to let him know and if he could... Uh, come over to receive them, that would be appreciated. So I, I scurried over to the, to the Kuti, which is a couple of hundred meters away, and uh, very unusually, Lumpur was, was sitting there on this wicker bench with no one else around. He was just sitting there with his eyes closed. And I was extremely nervous, and uh, having this, that inexplicable visceral fear. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh dear, I don't want to disturb Lumpur, what do I do? So he was sitting there. Completely still, there's no expression on his face on his wicker bench. So I kind of knelt there for a bit and I, I better, I better go and tell Ajahn Chu that he's, he's meditating. So I got up and scurried away and then got about 10 yards away and I thought, no, no, I'll, he'll only tell me to come back again. So I kind of came back and sort of knelt in front of Lumpur and <coughs> coughed. And said, Lumpur? And then he opened his eyes. And there was absolutely nobody there. It's like he kind of there was this he, he, he there was there was seeing, but there was like uh, Lempozzino describes. He, I, uh, I'd look at him and there'd be just no one there. So he opened his eyes and there was absolutely nobody there. And then you could see the person arriving. There's sort of this whoop. <laughs> he kind of put on the human to engage with it. Alright. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> and I said, "Oh, uh, Ajahn Chu said there's some guests have arrived at the at the sala. Could you come and visit them?" In my very poor Thai, and then he made some kind of wisecrack that I couldn't understand. But it was the the thing that was most astonishing was just seeing a human arriving, like a human being born. There was there was absolutely no there was no thing there, and then this person appeared, and there was there was long sort of being. Who he is but just like the, this, this described here there's this kind of putting on of the persona the mask which is what persona means it comes from the latin for a mask um, which was a compassionate tool so he'd, he'd put on the char thing to engage with the with the world So let's see, the next section is called Sense of Humor. So I'll read a little bit of this and then have time for some questions. One of the personality traits that marked Lumpur as a boy and endured throughout his life was his sense of humor. It was a quality that always drew people to him and made them enjoy his company. As a teenage novice, Lumpur was notorious amongst his friends for how much he found funny and how easily he could burst into laughter. As he got older, Lung curbed his tendency to lose his composure at the sight of the incongruous, the ridiculous, and the self-important, but his enjoyment of them never seemed to fade. He became adept at allowing his sense of humour to shape teachings that, delivered more sternly, might have been less easily received. He pointed to people's arrogance and superstitions and foolishness in ways that bypassed their habitual defences leaving them disarmed and wiser. As a teacher, he would have agreed with the saying that comedy is a humorous way of saying serious things. Lumpur's rich sense of humor did not mean that he told jokes. To do so would have been considered inappropriate for a summoner. He did not set himself up as an entertainer, nor did he try to make people laugh for the sake of it. He never spoke in ways that made fun of others' ethnicity or religion or sexuality or that tapped into people's prejudices in any way. He allowed his sense of humour to reveal itself only within the limits provided by the Vinaya. These limits are stringent. It's forbidden, for example, to speak in jest about the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And the logic behind this is that, by not trivialising the refuges, the uplifting emotions meant to be inspired by them remained uncompromised. Lying in jest is included in the precepts governing unskillful speech, and so precludes most kinds of playfulness, and the prohibition against inciting anxiety prevents practical jokes. There's a long list of conversational topics which monks are to avoid altogether, unless to illustrate a point of Dhamma. So, things that we're not allowed to talk about. Kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, relatives... Carriages, villages, towns and cities, countries, women, heroes, street and well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, speculations about land and sea, talk about being and non-being. From such injunctions, there would seem to be little left for monks to talk about, much less speak about amusingly. This is far from the case. When Lumpur was in the mood, his exuberance was infectious. When telling an anecdote, expanding upon the absurd and incongruous forms in which defilement could manifest, or mimicking someone under the sway of greed or anger, he could provoke a genuine sense of delight in his audience. Lumpur's gift for physical comedy provoked wide grins and even giggles. One of his favourite stories concerned a mangy dog who blamed his suffering on the places he found himself in, rather than the mange he carried with him. Lumpur liked to accompany this story with bewildered Bewildered scratchings at his body and armpit. Even the most composed monks would find themselves chuckling. Although he did not tell jokes as such, Lampore had the timing of a comedian. He was a gifted raconteur and knew well how to ratchet up the expectation during the course of a teaching story and to deflate it expertly with a twist at the end of the tale. Like most intelligent people, Brought up in a predominantly oral culture, Lung t- gr- uh, took great delight in puns and wordplay, as did the Buddha. His discourses are sprinkled with them. Examples from his talks might be cited to show his wit, verbal dexterity and ingenuity, but would fail to transmit the essential point of them, the pleasure they provided. It's hard to convey how much people enjoyed it when Lung Por, referring to the corruption of the Tudong tradition, that's the wandering through the countryside, uh, the corruption of the two tradition caused by monks accepting lifts in cars than, rather and, and walking rather than walking, called it Talukdong or in one end of the forest and straight out the other. So you know you can say well, that's what Talukdong means. Or, but uh, Tudong and Tolukdong they sound like each other, but one is um, something that is sort of noble and worthy, and the other is a sort of total waste of time. And so that, uh, as Ajahn Jaya says, he can't really catch the 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 full flavor of it, but uh, it it was uh, those kind of puns and double meanings were very very frequent in Longpo's teachings. Some of the most memorable examples of Longpo's sense of humor occurred through the -the off-the-cuff comments or replies to questions. Often they involved involved him invoking fresh, unexpected ways of looking at familiar issues, thereby puncturing his audience's attachments. For those of other cultures, and thus with other conventions and beliefs, such humour, especially in translation, tends to fall flat. However, a couple of examples may give something of the flavour of his humorous comments. On one occasion, a young man, newly constri- conscripted into the army, asked Lumpur for a, a Buddha medallion to wear around his neck as a protection against bullets. He was following in an old tradition. Monks had been known to provide empowered amulets to soldiers for hundreds of years. Lung Poor, however, always refused to do so. Before explaining why, he pointed to the life-size brass Buddha statue on the shrine. Take that one if you like. Carry it in front of you and no bullets will get you for sure. As the human body does not vary from one culture to another, humour derived from it is more universal. Ajahn Sumedha recalls a time that Lung <coughs> took him to visit some of the great masters of the Lung Pu Man tradition. In Udon Province, they paid their respects to one elderly master, believed to be an arahant, who was confined to a wheelchair and rarely spoke. Lumpur had recently been offered a cassette recorder and was using it to record Dhamma teachings. It was placed in front of the venerable old monk, who sat there quietly, smiling at them. After a suitable time had elapsed and it was clear that he was not going to he was not going to speak, they prepared to bow. They prepared to bow to him and leave. At that moment, the great master farted back in the car Lumpur replayed the tape the sound of the f- <laughs> the sound of the fart was clearly audible Lumpur looked at Ajahn Samato and said that was a good teaching <laughs> <laughs> so there you go it's a good note to finish on <coughs> any questions thoughts reflections mm-hmm. yes I have a few from earlier sessions, actually, if that's all right. But maybe we should let other people ask about this. Yes. First. Yes. Um, yes, let other people ask about this one <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. okay. Now everyone's gone quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The ability of changing the personas, as you've spoken about before, would you say that it's a uh, similarity to as uh, Carlos Castaneda is uh, referring to the art of trekking? Or uh, I don't know the English term now. Oh, I haven't read Carlos Castaneda for years and years and years. I couldn't say, because I haven't read it for so long. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was not something that, that Lumpur would think about, it just would happen on its own. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't. he wouldn't say, hmm... Bangkok intellectual, you know, which mask shall I use? You know, okay, that one. <laughs> you know, it would just be automatic. So it was more like instinct. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then if it's you know, someone from the village whose who's, uh, father's just died, then mm-hmm. he would immediately just go into that mode of knowing that person and knowing the, using the village language. And, and so that there was not any kind of um, structure to it. It would be automatic. Also, even though Ajahn Jayasaro says that it wasn't, it wasn't multitasking. There is actually um, in in Sanskrit. There's a uh, it's recognised that the capacity to to do what Lumpur would do, and and which is really, I would say, is a kind of multitasking. It's called Ashtavadana, and it's recognised as a quality of great spiritual teachers. Is that ability to be attentive to a whole group of people and to be responding. And to all different situations, different concerns, you know, simultaneously and to be you know, attuned to a whole variety of different things uh, all at the same time. So that is recognized as being a, a capacity of great spiritual teachers. Well, I don't think there's a Pali equivalent but in, in Sanskrit it's called Thank you. I don't know why I remember that but I do. Okay. then we So uh, <coughs> uh, the other time you spoke about uh, Mansa, like uh, analyzing your meditation in a way. Uh, well, it's it's not just meditation, but uh, any any thing that you do, yeah. any work, any um, action that is taken, looking at the results of what you do. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about like. Uh, <coughs> In terms of not sort of um, uh, craving particular mind states, or like uh, this meditation is what I want and this is what I not want, and what I don't want, sometimes uh, it some might collide mm-hmm. in your own mind because when you are sort of uh, uh, if you are trying to use the, the Mangsa the principle in your meditation, your sort of your underlying assumption could perhaps be that. Prefer some states about some others mm-hmm. so. it could be I think it's mostly just uh, it's looking to see what was the results of the the action that you were taking I mean it could be that you were pleasantly surprised that it, it didn't go the it didn't go the way that you that you expected but you came, it ended up um, with better results than you uh, than you you, uh, you thought were possible <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or it could be that you, feel, you thought things were going uh, really well, and then you uh, you realise I've ended up in the wrong place altogether. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I enjoyed the drive, but I'm I'm in Peterborough instead of in uh, in Reading. Okay. It's like oh, I've gone north instead of south. Mm. Oh well. <laughs> oh. So it's um, that it's simply that uh, turning to look, turning in, in a sense, turning back to look at the results of the actions that you, you've taken. And then in an unbiased way, as unbiased as possible, to, to see, well, what was the effect of that? What, uh, I, I had that intention, this was the, 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 the wish, and then uh, the effort was, say, you were trying to drive to Reading, uh, you wanted to go to Reading, and then now the signs are all saying Peterborough. This is the wrong town. <laughs> So that you uh, you you you're comparing where you've ended up uh, with where you were set, what you were setting out to do, but then you might realise well okay here I am in Peterborough well I guess I can just go uh, go shopping here instead you know, that mm-hmm. just make a phone call and say I'm not going to be able to meet you but I'll we'll catch up again next week and then you mm-hmm. enjoy discovering Peterborough mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. as a nice surprise so that it's. You you are comparing um, what the intention was at the beginning and where uh, where things have gone, but um, you're you're not doing that with a with a with a rigid view or a rigid plan. Mm-hmm. All these things this is wrong and bad just because it didn't turn out the way I expected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts, reflections? Uh, I don't that a question. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was just about what we were speaking about yesterday about the doubt. And um, I just wondered um, what place would you say intuition plays in kind of putting through doubts? You know, sort of, um, I know it's, well. Um, you know, you don't know what to do in a situation, but then you use your intuition. Kind of mm-hmm. You say that as a phrase. Yeah, they, well, uh, the phrase "intuitive wisdom" is a favourite one of Nompole Sumatos. and uh, he uses that as the translation for sati sampajanya. And uh, in in a way, it's when you uh, the uh, when you. Uh, let go of trying to think to your, your way to a, a conclusion and you just let the, the questions of hover in the mind, and <clears throat> then often the, uh, uh, an answer will appear, or a different way of looking at the issue, looking at the situation, will, will arise on its own. So then, in a sense, that letting go of doubt is what enables intuition to, to work effectively. So sometimes uh, I talk about that that process of uh, say of, re- of wise reflection and uh, 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 letting go of of thought and uh, cutting through through doubts as a way of uh, cu- uh, consulting your own oracle, uh, so sort of drawing upon your own wisdom. Because oftentimes when we're so busy trying to to think our way or rationalise our way to some sort of Certainty or, or finality, some sort of conclusion. We make our minds so busy and cluttered that we we are obscuring our own intuitive sense for the how the situation is. And if we just let the clutter <laughs> uh, uh, abate, the sort of, let let the mind be free of all that clutter. And and <clears throat> and often if if you. Use the meditation for this, just to let the mind be as quiet as possible, and then simply ask the question: You know, what is the, what's most important to me here, or what's the, what really feels like the best way forward? Often we haven't simply just asked ourselves the most direct and uh, an obvious question. We've been so filled with all the rights and wrongs and shoulds and shouldn'ts. Uh, to just ask ourselves, well, what looks like the best way forward here? What, uh, uh, what's the, um, uh, what uh, feels like a good direction here? And then often it's, it's sort of instantaneous. There's a, a sense of, of um, oh, well, obviously, <laughs> what you really care about is X. Or it can be that what arises is, it's not knowable right now. They're, they're, it's foggy. It's dark. You can't see. There's no obvious way forward because it's it's uh, you haven't got enough. Vis- there's not enough visibility. You can't see. So relax. <laughs> Wait till dawn, and there's a bit, bit more light, and you can see what's going on. Wait till the fog lifts, and then you'll be able to see. So uh, it's it's a bit hard to describe, but that's a. Um, uh, I, I would say it's in the meditation you can often do your clearest thinking and that, and that quality of, of intuitive awareness, or that awareness that's, that's uh, aligned with the quality of wisdom, it's more re- <coughs> reliable because it's, it's really attuned to the time, the place, the situation. So in a way it's, a, it's drawing upon your own natural the connectedness of the, your mind with your living situation, with the people that are involved, and the, and the, what's happened in the past—it's it's more uh, attuned to those uh, those aspects, and so that uh, it's in, uh, that intuition is informed by that sense of of the of all the different uh, factors that are that are involved. Do you follow that? Okay, I think we can call it a halt then. Interesting how a number of these the, these stories that Eugen Saro uh, writes down in the book they're they're a little bit different from the the uh, versions I've heard in different times and different places. So, with, uh, some of them are more magical, and some of them are less magical. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was actually before cassettes. I think it was a it was a Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorder that they had on that that Lumpur Chah had been given because they, they had to restore all these old tapes mm. and they had these old uh, real to, uh, probably some of you never even heard of real to reel tapes <laughs> 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 it wasn't a cassette, it was actually like a spool with, with tape around it and the, the story was that the, uh, uh, the, as I heard it was the, the uh, venerable old Arahant that they went to visit he did give them a Dhamma talk but all of the words disappeared, and all that was left on the tape was the fart. <laughs> so, this is less magical than that. It's a, it's a good story, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, whether Ajahn Jayasaro did some demagicalizing editing, I don't know, but um, I'll have to consult with him and find out.